Welcome to the Autism Through Cinema podcast, investigating autistic presence and expression on screen. This podcast is brought to you by the Autism Through Cinema project, based at Queen Mary, University of London, and funded by the Wellcome Trust. For more on this project, please visit our website, autism-through-cinema.org.uk, and follow us on Twitter, at Autism Cinema. This podcast brings together a group of autistic and non-autistic thinkers, academics and cinema lovers for discussions on films and TV programmes with a particular autistic interest. We look at the representation of autism, the ethics of performing autism, as well as where autistic expression may have been captured, sometimes inadvertently, by the movement of the camera and the use of sound and imagery. We are always interested in our listeners' thoughts, comments and feedback, so please do share these with us by dropping us an email at cinemaautism at gmail.com. If you like what we're doing, please subscribe to the podcast and share our episodes far and wide. In today's episode, the team discussed the documentary The Gleaners and I by French filmmaker Agnes Varda, which was released in the year 2000. In this recording, you will hear the voices of John James Laidlow, Alex Widowson, Janet Harbord, Georgia Kumari Bradburn, David Hartley, and Vicky Thornton. Thanks for listening. We hope you enjoy the discussion. I chose The Gleaners and I, not, not only because it's my favourite film, but also because there's several strands that I think could be explored in regards to like a, a neurodiverse sensibility in cinema. So firstly, it's... Um, the structure and the form of the film and, and how it's quite meandering and, and also the the ability to imagine and explore alternatives in, in all different ways. Um, and finally, finding and embracing sort of joy and pleasure in um, in everyday life and things that people might disregard as, as not worthy of of joy or pleasure. And um, when I was researching the film, because it's been a few years since I watched it, I found an, uh, a quote from Varda in 2017. And she said, my job is to make documentaries and try to give an account of different lives and different ways of thinking. I thought that was quite quite nice and summed up what why the film appealed to me in this context. Yeah, that's a really nice quote from from Varda. Um, can you say a little bit more about the structure of the film? It's like I agree with you, it's really it's a really interesting structure, how to, how she sort of orchestrates these different lives and different interests. Um, could you give us a description of, of what that's like? Um yeah so so the word I used to describe it was meandering. Um she's um she starts by using the the the, the topic, well, the dictionary definition of, of gleaning, which is to pick up um, fruits and vegetables after the harvest that's left behind. Um, and she sort of uses that as a starting point to explore such a wide range of topics. And um, the, the, way she, the way she narrates and structures the film, it did, it did remind me quite a lot of... Um, if you if you talk to a, an autistic person about what what neurotypicals call a special interest and and 
she really takes pleasure in the digressions that they're, they're not just digressions the digressions are the whole purpose of it um so she meets all these characters and travels to all these different regions um and i just find it fascinating and really playful and and enjoyable yeah yeah i, I would totally agree with that john james um this is uh this is my first Agnes Varda film. I've never, I've never watched any Varda films before this. Um, and I was absolutely delighted by it. I thought it was just a, such a beautiful film. And so, yeah, lovely. And meandering is absolutely right. Like it, it has this beautiful freedom to it where she just seems to just go out with her camera and just see who she finds and see what she can see. And even when she's looking at like, vegetables she's just getting distracted or or having a look at different shapes of vegetables different colors of vegetables and there's an absolute joy to the whole thing i thought it was a it was a really joyful and very playful film yeah absolutely right um and yeah i can totally see how it resonates as a you know with a kind of autistic read it's so um in a way that's really refreshing as well because it just seems to have that uh that 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 roving eye that just gets wonderfully caught by trucks passing on the motorway or by uh, interesting shapes or colors or people or uh, actions and doing th things happening. Um, yeah, it was just such, just such a joy. And I, I, I did want to say, John James, thank you for suggesting this film. I may be a little bit less uh, bold in my uh, confidence about drawing sort of comparisons between um, uh, neurodiverse aesthetics and sort of cultural forms, but I certainly thought there was something about the idea of reframing consumerism as uh, rather than a sort of mainstream activity that we all sort of accept and is almost invisible to our perceptions. We had this whole community of gleaners who are sort of questioning these basic assumptions, these sort of assumed positions and it's even explicitly stated by one of the gleaners that um, the only reason or the main reason they're doing this is for an ethic, a sort of, uh, it's actually an absurd situation to just be normalized to the idea of wasting food. And so there is this potential for um, the, the perspective of the so-called outsider sort of having a, a vantage point on the sort of assumptions of society that's very evident within this film. Uh, yeah, you make you make a really good point about um, the idea of like um, Vada being sort of an outsider in the documentary. Because I mean, I mean, this has sort of come at a perfect time for me because I'm I'm writing an essay about it for uni right now. So um, and I've been studying it a lot. So it's kind of I've been looking into it quite a lot. But um, but one thing that really strikes me is is Vada's involvement in the in the documentary. And so she she she's an outsider, but she you know she she's putting her point of view. So she's looking at a group of people or people who would consider themselves gleaners or people whose professions could be by definition be gleaning. And she also she puts on herself and she turns the lens on herself and asks if she herself is a gleaner in her filmmaking. Um, and I don't know. It, it's an approach. I, I mean. In in terms of like autism, I, I feel like as approach as an approach, it it, it sort of um, encourages uh, like a intersectional way of thinking 
I think that's the thing that, that I, I got from it. You know, as someone who always does kind of feel like on the periphery of things, you know, I feel like my needs are kind of, I'm speaking selfishly as an autistic person. I feel like my needs are kind of put to the back quite a lot of the time. Like I have to really fight for, you know, um, any like special needs that I might, ha- I might have. Um, and also it's interesting because I, I love Vada a lot and her as a filmmaker, she's always been one of those filmmakers who she comes, she's come back a couple of times throughout the years um but then she kind of gets lost and forgotten again so she herself could be you know considered an outsider and in that sense you know i i feel like she has a great vantage point um but yeah i mean it it is more it is about you know finding the leftover pieces and um joy and um things that weren't weren't aren't considered like mainstream or popular or the center of focus um and also i really like um when uh, john james picked up the idea of like special interests um because um i i feel like that sometimes like i'll go off and i'll um fixate on something that doesn't even seem relevant but actually there's a lot of joy to be found and I I think actually a lot of people could benefit from that and you know not just within the framework of autism um yeah I think um what you're saying Georgia because also I'm looking at it through this lens of having I I taught the visual essay last year so I also taught this film so I'm sort of coming from the same so when um, John James just I was like oh yeah you know this is a really good and exciting thing I think this idea of the meandering um, and collating different material. I don't know, as, as a filmmaker myself, I always feel that that kind of is the thing that you do. And I think, I don't know, I can't frame it through um, this kind of, um, particularly through an autistic lens, but I can frame it as a kind of documentary filmmaker in this collection of material. So I think this, you know, the, the very famous dance of the lens cap sequence that's in the film and, you know, all of these things that we sort of that happen to us when we're making films and when we're kind of out, I guess, in the field, let's call it. And you kind of, for me, it's always quite unsatisfactory when you finish a film and there's all these things that go on outside the frame that don't end up in the film. And you're thinking, if only we'd filmed that conversation that we had when we were driving from A to B, or if only we'd kind of, um, I don't know, got that moment with that person in the cafe when we were just having lunch on a break or something like that. And I think the joy, I think with, with Vardra, it really is a joy. It's really about presenting all of those kind of things. Yes, it's a reflexive process, but it's also the small sort of miniature things that the misshapen potato, the, the lens cap that's kind of, um, you know, falls away and becomes in a way its own protagonist. I think that joy that Agnes Varda has within her filmmaking is is really exciting to me as a filmmaker. Yeah, I, I agree with that. And I think that the the way in which she brings, the way in which the film is focused on what is usually outside of the frame, as people are saying, is, is suddenly you realise that's the making of the film. That it's not going to be about gleaning, as we see in all these series, the series of paintings that she collects along the way. It's actually around what, how, how that whole scene is set up and how, how it comes to be. Um, and I think one of the striking things about it in terms of her being in it, as you were saying, Georgia Rada in the film, um, is her aging. You know, that's something that's usually left outside of of, 
of, of the filmmaking process. Usually we don't get to see the person filmmaking, um, their own personal uh, presence, but we get that with Varda and she focuses on the thing that's sort of taboo or typically left out, which is when she, and she comes back to it several times in, in the film. And I think there's, there's that correspondence between what she sees as, as what's outside of the frame about herself as an aging woman filmmaker, um, with all of the practices and processes and objects that are usually left outside of the frame in our, in our life, rotting vegetables and so forth. Another thing that that I was thinking about watching this film um, again several times I've seen this film now is um, the way in which people we get to know people through what they do rather than who they are. Even, even when we get people with quite high profile jobs like the judge or, or the lawyers who who come in at various times in their robes, it's very much about a performance of what they do rather than the title of who they are. And I think that that gives the film a particular flavour as well. That there's there's a tone of sort of um, of I don't know more of a levelling that we see people doing things rather than approaching them through through institutional titles or so forth. Um, and it's it's also a really interesting way of of, of approach form of approach that you sort of follow someone and and observe them and, and question them and be with them. Um, and that idea of identity being about rooted in what you do rather than somehow what's inside and what you can say about yourself seems really quite original to me. And then also the, yeah, uh, the, the sort of su surprises, I guess, of, of then following some of those people. People through a, um, you get the, I'm thinking particularly of the, of the man at the end um who uh you, you're we're, we're ha perhaps as viewers making a certain assumptions about who this man is and uh the, the way he's living his life because he's picking through the markets at the end and he's just eating food as he finds it um and uh, agnes Varder is clearly interested in this guy and she says how that she's been keeping an eye on him and and filming him for quite some time and occasionally she goes over to him and occasionally he'll speak and occasionally they'll have a little bit of a conversation and then all of a sudden that just unfolds into this lovely um uh, exploration of the person who he is and you discover that he he's uh he he teaches uh, migrants um french um in his spare time without getting paid for it every day every night and it was such a wonderful way of um following those threads that she sort of introduces all the way through the film of, of different individuals and in different uh, uh, directions. Um, and it's just, it was a great, um, yeah, it was, a, it was a beautiful moment where she just sort of, it's a way of saying, you know, the, the, these are the people we capture on our, on our cameras, particularly when we make documentaries. And yet they are far, everyone is far more complex and interesting than we might at first assume when we when we when we've seen them when we've captured them, and I think that's a really good that's a really good message for neurodiversity as message in relation to autism. You might look at somebody on the street who is picking through some rubbish and think, oh, they're a bit weird or they're a bit odd or what have you, and yet um, Varda finds that way to really beautifully unfold that person who they are and yes they might be 
there might be oddities and quirks to who that person is, but also there's absolute beauty and and in an incredible story. I kind of wanted to say I, I agree with what David was saying, and I think that this idea of the camera as a kind of social encounter is really important in the film. So by the camera being there, in some ways. Yeah, of course, uh, Agnes Varda is behind it, but she also used it to to enable these conversations, which I really enjoy. And I I don't know, I I suppose I find it quite a healing approach in lots of ways. So as well as this unfolding of things and showing herself, it's really about these kind of, um, yeah, opening up conversations. It's a a tool for dialogue, I think, which I find quite sort of refreshing to watch as a filmmaker. And we're also sort of reframing the encounter with other people as one of um you know who are they who are they to me to just one of open curiosity and fascination and just as david was saying it's a sort of non-judgmental gaze which uh, in sometimes the first opening seconds we're sort of confronted with behavior that we're unfamiliar with and as the conversations continue there's this full explanation and opportunity for them to really give their perspective that's um Uh, runs as this great metaphor, as David was saying, for neurodiversity and openness about these kinds of differences. Yeah, I um, I really like the... Part of me like to see it as um, Vada learning through... I mean, that's, I suppose, like the point of the documentary, but she's learning um, about something as she goes along, but it starts off as a very, you know, basic definition of what a gleaner is. There's someone who picks up the leftover um, fruit um, and after the harvest. Um, but as the film goes on, that definition becomes more and more blurred and more unclear. Um, and that also sort of speaks to me in terms of um, um, like an autistic person uh, navigating the world. And, and I I speak from experience and I, I still feel like that quite a lot of the time. Like I feel like I'm trying to, I think about something and it looks really simple, but then I have to learn that there's so many complexities, like the way people behave or certain roles in life. And then you start to involve yourself in a way. And, that, and that's when she starts to see herself as a gleaner. Um, so the, yeah, the idea of an idea kind of unfolding and sort of, sort of becoming universal rather than just one definition I found really interesting and yeah I definitely agree with um, what David was saying about the the camera as um, a, a way to understand people um, rather than just at face value um, and allowing us to you know um, understand people we wouldn't otherwise know about and we wouldn't otherwise appreciate actually um and yeah i think that for me that was the joy of it because it felt it felt like this was a film for um people who kind of are swept under the carpet or things or roles or in life that are swept under the carpet um and uh, that definitely does apply uh, to a uh, neurodivergent point of view in the sense that, you know, it, it's something that isn't brought to the forefront as much as it should be. Yeah. Um, I think um, that there's a man at one point that wears rubber boots or, or wellies and he, he goes around uh, the town, the small town he lives in, and he lives mostly off what he finds in bins. Um, 
and I guess um, a lot of people see him as an as an oddity, like oh, it's the man in the boots. Um, but that th- they don't seem to be like um, they don't seem to have negative feelings towards him, but they do think think he's a bit odd. That's what I picked up. But Vada was like genuinely curious, and this man was able to conceive or point out that that the things we're doing and just accepting society are really a bit silly and wasteful. And so he's able to conceive or step outside of those social rules and and point out the ridiculousness of them. And I feel that that's what Varda's doing in the film as well. She's um, She's an outsider with outsiders looking at the centre and saying, you're a bit silly. Um, and, I mean, the French title is The Gleaners and the Female Gleaner, so she doesn't she doesn't really see herself as different to the, to the people she's filming. She, she fully admits that she's a bit of an outsider and a bit weird too, but that that knowledge that people would like ascribe, I guess, in, in past to the village fool or something, that, you know, th- th- there's worth in that knowledge. There's the, the stuff, there's points that we should listen to as a society. I think that's what's really interesting. And, yeah. Mm, I think that's really nice what, what you and George are both describing about the vantage point of, of the outsider. And then also the, the the practice of observation, which is um, a bit like the, the experience of of observing neurotypicality and 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 seeing it for what it is um, that people who are in that can't actually see. I want I wanted to ask about um, the sort of the next move on from that that where we see Varda actually interacting with people more than one person. And I think there are a few instances in the film where this happens. Um, I'm thinking of one scene where she's sitting outside the bar with that couple who are describing when they first met. And she describes the guy, the wife says, oh, you know, I was struck by this bolt of lightning because of what he was wearing. And she describes his red hat and his green shirt and his mustard trousers and so forth. And there's a, and then the exchange takes place where, you know, and then she says, he he can't remember anything about me. And, and, and Vada says, is that true? And he says, yes, you know, it wasn't a bolt of lightning. So there's that moment. And then there's another one where the guy who's the, was the bricklayer, who's made the, the amazing totems of, out of dolls. <clears throat> and, um, uh, and he's quite quiet. But his wife comes out and Varda says, well, what, what do you think of his work? And she says, well, he's an amateur. And it's quite, it's quite shocking that this, he's constructed this whole world, which is quite amazing, beautiful, and um, totemic, and people come to see it. And his, yeah, his wife describes him in this way. I just wonder what you thought of those encounters. Um, what, how is it that Varda elicits that? And... And what makes people speak in that way to her in front of the camera? Is it to do with the camera or is it to do with Varda's cultivation of that relationship? Um, I'm not sure. that it's, it, it, She seems to sort of get something from them that you have the feeling that wouldn't come out without her presence. I sort of disagree. I think those are well-rehearsed sort of bits that couples have developed 
you know it's like a I felt the story about the the meeting point had been rehearsed and re retold many many times so I think what Vard is really doing is sort of tapping into an existing showmanship from both the members of the couple and this sort of double act that sort of precedes the documentary it didn't seem like a, this innovative moment of realization for the people involved because you sometimes do get that in documentaries where you feel like people haven't really ever thought about this in these terms before but i i don't know i just saw it differently oh okay i mean maybe, maybe i'm picking up on something that's about the crossing is some kind of boundary that's being crossed there for me and maybe it's about bringing private things into a public domain maybe that's a more accurate description of it but it seems as though there's something something in that moment that um is being exposed it makes me think of it reminds me of a film i watched um uh, it's a short film called uh, Late at Night, Voices of Ordinary Madness by uh, Jean Lugo. And it's a, it's a documentary where she uh, she took a really low budget camera and filmed the people of Hackney in the East End. You know, people who have been, you know, discarded kind of, because this is when, you know, in the early 2000s when Hackney was like the most uh, deprived area in London and one of the most in the country. And um, it was, you know, people on the outskirts of the financial district and who she was interviewing. And um, and then she uh, she did an interview at a film festival where she was saying that because I mean, she because she was an immigrant herself. And so she what and she recently moved to London. So she was an outsider in herself in kind of uh, a borough full of outsiders. Um, and she describes like her um, encounters with the people. Uh, as and they they sort of saw her and kind of laughed at her because you know here's this person who's not from here with a camera asking us questions, and, and because of that they sort of allowed um, themselves to give their point of view, like because they didn't really see her as anything serious. You know she was kind of you know this. She, I think she describes oh I'm just a stupid person who's here. Um, I know this because I've just done a project on it for uni, but um, uh, yeah. Um, so the the fact that that, that they didn't consider her to be like you know a threat or you know or or someone who is directly affecting them and their livelihood um it is not necessarily a trust it's more of a you know i can share this with this person because it's you know it's it's not important and so because of that she got kind of an insider's point of view um and i i feel like this is quite similar because she you know she's Agnes Varda does kind of see herself as an outsider or just more, you know, an oddball, someone who's, you know, doesn't fit with, you know, um, the mainstream. Um, and, and th yeah, throughout the film and the, those encounters with people, it, it does sort of feel like these people are just, you know, talking about themselves, you know, with someone who is similar, but is also an outsider. And I I think it's really interesting how you can have these you can be a stranger, but also um, someone so familiar at the same time, just because of like, like these universal shared experiences. Yeah, I thought it was interesting. <laughs> yeah, I, th I think, um, I don't know, I see her as a, as, as a, as a Varda as a quite a, a sort of, almost a little bit of a trickster figure. She's sort of uh, a bit on the fringes, but I get the feeling that she's always got a smirk on her face and she's always got a kind of a little bit of a plan as to what she's doing. And, and 
I imagine she's just one of those people that can just wheel her way into talking to anybody um, and uh, point a camera in their face and we'll, they, will, they will talk. I, I just get that impression from her. It's interesting to think about as well that she also interviews a number of um, like people who are not the gleaners, the ones that I suppose who would be the the enemies of the gleaners, the kind of harvesters, the the business people, the ones who are the farmers and the and the um, uh, the viticulturists, and uh, and she still manages and the the fishermen, and she still manages to get uh, those people to talk as well, and they they are perhaps less the outsiders than the gleaners. They're the working people. Um, and they're often just standing there, maybe leaning against their equipment or in the in their orchards and sort of disgruntedly just saying, "Yeah, we let the gleaners do this as long as they you know obey our rules kind of thing um and she seemed and even though she she can be quite I, it was it was amusing me the way she was quite abrupt with some of her questions um uh, she never seems to disarm anyone and everyone always seems to be able to sort of speak quite openly with her. And I think that that was, that was quite, uh, that was uh, refreshing to see. The person that it reminded me of a little bit, as I was thinking a bit about, um, about Werner Herzog, who in some ways is quite similar, I think, as a, as a documentary filmmaker, he's a little bit more esoteric and a little bit more philosophical and, um, goes off on slightly wilder tangents, I think, sometimes. But uh, he has a similar method where he he will be able to... He he can elicit uh, quite interesting conversations out of people and then reflect upon them in his um, inimitable uh, voiceovers afterwards. Uh, But, yes, I I don't know quite where I was going with that point, but, yeah, I feel like she's got this kind of this way about her and that's why it was such a delight when she herself 10 minutes or so into the film appears on the camera and and appears so triumphantly when she's um mimicking that work of art and she's got the wheat behind her and she's standing there and sort of grinning and thinking yeah this is this is this is who she is she's planting her flag in a way she's this um slightly smirking slightly tricksterish but fun kind of woman who would be able to elicit any kind of response from anyone I feel like like I would I would feel very happy and comfortable talking to her on camera I think um I think yeah um people people don't see her as a threat as Georgia said but also um they kind of don't see her as an authority um so I I think it it probably is because she's she's a small older woman um and she's got this little camera they don't they don't see it yeah as georgia said as a threat and, and also it's interesting what david said that she interacts with um authority figures in a way and she gets it's quite interesting that she she's not seen as a figure of authority, but she gets these authority figures to to perform. Like there's the there's the judge who's in the cabbage field um in his robes. It's kind of it's kind of ridiculous and 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 funny. And I guess maybe she's in a way poking fun at at, at the ridiculousness of these institutions that we all follow. 
um, and when David mentioned she's saying stuff with a slight smirk, it just reminds me a bit of Louis Theroux. <laughs> you know, he just he just he kind of plays up a bumbling British nurse. But yeah, I guess it kind of reminded me of that. Yeah, that's a, that's definitely another good comparison. Like that bumbling Englishness that was that is able to talk to like neo Nazis is is an incredible skill. <laughs> <clears throat> Sorry to bring Nazis into it. Didn't mean to do that. <laughs> she uh, she does also set people up slightly through the way that the film's edited. I think she co-edited the film. Um, I'm thinking of the that cut that comes quite early in the film after she's spent some time with um, the potato gleaner and she's got his story. She goes into the caravan and talks to him and his friend and he talks about having lost his driving licence after he's breathalyzed and that his life spirals. And we hear about and we see real hardship. Um, and then she cuts and we're immediately in the kitchen of this guy who's a chef who's got two Michelin stars, who's... You know, then he's and what she cuts to is him describing the menu, and and it's quite an amazing menu of stuff that he's cooking: nut soup with um, truffle and so on. That's kind of quite, quite um, well, very expensive sorts of foods um, that he's cooking with. And then we see him going and picking. He's a picker. I think he describes himself rather than a gleaner. Um, but we just the contrast of those two lives in that moment. Um, is, you know, you, you can't help but notice that difference. And I think the cut draws our attention to the to the difference in, in wealth and in culture and status in, in that moment without her having said anything. What we said about her lens, her, her gaze being non-judgmental earlier, maybe it is judgmental, but just a bit subtler. And I guess maybe she's um, trying to to point out the, the inequalities, but she's got quite an equalising gaze in a way. But that's quite interesting, yeah. Well, to add to that, I think, you know, the gaze that she presents, I agree with you both, there is non-judgmental non sort of themes within them, but she's not totally neutral. She asks quite provocative questions sometimes, such as questioning the number of, al of alcoholic beverages the guys in a trailer home consume per day. You can't help but ignore her sort of preconceptions about what would be acceptable behavior or not. But I think what's important is that she places herself in the film. She's visible, maybe not tangibly visible all the time, but pr her presence is very noticeable. And that reflexive device is a clear ethical choice to sort of position her perspective and her gaze and her opinions in a way that's tangible rather than rendered sort of invisible to the audience and um, therefore accepted as a sort of neutral objective perspective. So her subjectivity in her subjective perspective in this film is like a clear ethical choice. Um, I think um, a, lot, a, lot, a lot of people comment on the, um, the ageing, um, that, that she uh, quite, quite not proudly. Um, she, she just it, it films her hand close up and she comments on the aging process and she, and she shows her gray hairs um and she doesn't seem that bothered by it she she doesn't say it's not 
she says something like it's not rage it's not despair um and i think she has quite an interesting at least in this film well in quite a few films relationship to time um so time it doesn't seem as linear as in a lot of films she she sort of shifts the the meandering of subject matter she also meanders through times and she yeah when she's looking at all the memorabilia from japan um when she's talking about past events she it seems like they are just as close to her as the present at some points um yeah i think it's it, I, I was really amused by um you know these paintings of the gleaners and the one that's revealed at the end and then the presentation of this painting sort of resting in a dirty courtyard on the ground sort of rendering this sort of fine object of value in a context in which seems to sort of degrade it almost as if to sort of function as a parallel with the food that's you know highly valuable resting in the in the packaging on after the market so like it's all very sort of layered and sort of constructing these levels of gleaning within the um the form of the film and and the content as well uh it's you know she she's having a lot of fun sort of combining all these threads yeah i was just as you were talking alex i was thinking about the driving past that shop which is called finds and she says you know loads of shops are called curios curiosities this one's called finds and it seemed to call out to her and then she finds another painting and gleaning of gleaners and i was thinking about the liveliness of the object world and uh, John James's description at the beginning about the pleasure and joy in everyday life and, and things that are working or not working and how the, the material world just seems so full of life, both in her eyes and, and in the eyes of the eyes of people who she comes across and I just wondered if there's something more to say about that, about the way that it's a, a film that, although it does have vignettes in the way that we've described, we've been able to, to, to give a sense of the people who are in it, but there's also a great sense of the things in the film. It's a film about things and as well as practices. And I wonder if that has any relationship to the discussions we've been having about autism and different perceptions um, of a world that aren't, that don't tend to privilege the human so much. I guess there's something to be said in um, like the find, finding meaning uh, in objects rather than uh, people and things like that. I, I've, I like I feel like tempted to go back to the idea of like patterns with autism. Um, but it, it almost feels like, you know, when she keeps going, she she goes past that shop quite a few times and then she goes to it and um, that's when she uh, she finds the painting. So um, I don't know, I suppose you can look at it in the sense that... It, that she's maybe trying she's putting all these threads together to find um a meaning or something or finding meaning of her life or the other people's life through these objects that have such significance 
when you were talking about patterns, that reminded me of the the guy who's the the artist who's talking about mm. seeing lines. He in he's got pieces of wood and windscreen wipers from cars and stuff like that. And he his world is constructed out of all of these different um, objects where he's he's putting together patterns of of things into these bigger formations. And that he's. The context that we see him in reminded me a little bit of Pi. I don't know if anyone else felt that, um, where we, we have a world that's constructed out of bits and pieces and they become meaningful in this assemblage. Um, it's had something of that same aesthetic to me. I'm going to try and speak. If, if I uh, cut out again, I do apologise. Um, but no, I, this is something I did, did want to bring up, this idea of... Um, the uh, kind of autistic connection with things beyond the human, because um, this is something that's come across, that I've come across a few times in my own research. There's a philosopher called Erin um, Manning. I don't know if anyone's familiar with Erin Manning. Erin Manning. Uh, but she speaks. She's written about uh, autism quite a lot, and one of the things she suggests is this idea of. Um, what she calls the more than human, which is not necessarily a helpful um, phrasing because it sort of suggests cyborgs and robots, and that's a difficult path to go down. Um, but she, what I think what she's really trying to suggest about that is this, this idea that autist, autism and autistic people tend to have uh, a, a deeper, I suppose, connection with things that are not human, with, uh, with the extended world um or one that's one that neurotypical people don't tend to focus on or don't tend to necessarily connect with and this is like connections with animals but it can be connection with uh, objects um locations places things um a sense of animism i guess within uh, uh non non-living objects and that is something that that, that does come across in the film she does, Varda does have, an, seem to have a, an interest in everything, in, in just anything that the, the camera catches. I, I'm thinking of the trucks in particular on the, on, the, on, the, uh, on the road, on the motorway, and the way she brings her hand in front of the camera and, and playfully sort of catches the trucks, the, the lorries. And she says that she's not doing this for any kind of reason. She's just doing it because it's fun. <laughs> not quite like that. Um, and yeah, so there's this, this I, I am interested in that as an idea. In, in relation to autism as this whether there is this I had to, I, we had to be very careful because i don't want to say it's like a superpower or a magic thing or anything like that but more than it's that it's that it does seem to be autistic people do seem to have a greater um outward appreciation of the world i think and and all of the things in it sensory things and um in a way which is enriching and uh, important as well, it, it, especially in relation to kind of the Anthropocene and, and the environment and, and, and the way in which we use the objects that we create and the ways in which we, we misuse them and, and abandon them, I suppose. Um, so, yeah, that is definitely something that was coming through, and that's what I was reminded of at the moment when the lens cap was dancing. I thought, oh, yeah, that's exactly what it is. It's, it's seeing more of the fullness of the world rather than seeing the fairly neurotypical narrow vision, which is ironic given that it's autistic people who are often um, accused of having very narrow vision about the world. Mm. Uh, mm. Yeah. 
Um, I wonder if um, I wonder if if neurodiverse people just um don't um how can I phrase it? So maybe maybe neurotypical people have a similar relationship to objects, but they feel that's not a social norm. So they try and they try and suppress or hide it, or they're they're a bit ashamed of it. But neurodiverse people might might have a tendency to be like, yeah, I, I like collecting these things. So what? Um, because a lot a lot of people collect things who aren't autistic. But then, I'm thinking of my my assessment to get my diagnosis. One of the one of the criteria was um, something about um, collections and and having a hyper interest in in objects and i kind of think are we pathologizing um just a a a freedom to 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 not care and not not worry about societal judgments or norms as much i don't know it's just a thought yeah no i i definitely agree with that john james i think that's one of the things i've been thinking through myself is because I think it's not so much a pathology on the autistic part. I think it's an inhibition on the neurotypical part. I think it's like it's it's neurotypical people thinking that collecting is weird or thinking that you know saying that an animal has a voice or something is strange, and that's something that that I've that's one of the things I've really enjoyed discovering about myself actually uh, since thinking much more about neurodiversity is about opening out to the world a little bit and realizing that that it's not weird to imagine that a radiator has feelings or something like that. Or maybe that is still weird, but I, I only said that because I just looked across the room and there's a radiator. Um, <laughs> uh, but no, I, I totally agree with that. I think that, that that's something that is societally and culturally is, is, is kind of inhibited within neurotypicals, I guess. There's a there's a great scene at the beginning of a razorhead. We've been talking about David Lynch before, um, where he he sees things in a radiator. So you're not alone there, David. Good, I'm glad. <laughs> <laughs> um, but uh, what we were just saying about objects, it reminds me of of of, uh, of, of how you know of, of of how you are as a child, how one is as a child, where the world seems to be a, a world of objects that are alive and that speak or communicate in some way and have magical qualities and 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 neurotypicality is in fact a sort of narrowing down and an exclusion of those sorts of experiences and i think we can see neurotypicality as a <clears throat> as a framework that limits things you know and it, it disguises it as maturity and um you know education growing up and so forth but i think many things about growing up uh in in our culture are about loss actually and limitation so this what, what you're describing there reminded me of that this film just made me want to go outside and film stuff i mean i'm not a filmmaker but it made me want to get a camera and just go outside and point it at things that's what it, that's what this film did it's it's, it's great yeah i'm i i i have like i'm like a collector of all odd footage i mean in that way i could definitely very much relate to the film because i have 
bits of footage of I have the exact I have the lens cap dance like several times I have it dangling from a string from from a camera but I like I like keeping those things because I feel like I want to use them I like I don't know how or why but you know for me it feels like um these things might not seem important now but when they are important I want to be able to use them and I don't, I don't want to just throw them away. So I'm, I'm, I'm very much someone who doesn't want to waste things, even just like bits of random footage of just like the ground <laughs> or just people talking in the background. I don't know. It's, um, it's like, you know, as I, I like kind of picking up things that don't seem important now. Um, or just trying, you know, finding meaning in everything, even the smallest things. Again, going back to the thing about objects, everything seems to have its own form of life. Um, and there's some joy to be found in that. I, I would agree with that, Georgia. I think um, filmmaking, and this, we're talking about this kind of pathologizing things and talking about hyperfocus. I feel like filmmaking is a hyperfocus activity just generally. And I think that in order to be a um, perceptive and uh, I don't know, I suppose a filmmaker, particularly in terms of documentary, who is, a, who is able to perceive different things about the world about ar- around you and present them back to other people in order that they may relate to them. Um, I feel like you've got to have that hyper-focus. I think it, it's, it's part of filmmaking somehow. Absolutely. Yeah. I mean, this is all bringing me back to my foundation year when I first got a camera and spent a lot of time just trying to understand the natural rhythms of string and escalators. <laughs> but it's, yeah, it's all about sort of um, using that lens to look through to sort of appreciate the sort of natural rhythms and forms of reality and objects and I got I had very little interest actually in filming people talking about stuff that came much later, but I just wanted to understand objects. It's funny, yeah. Yeah, I I think for me that's um that's why kind of autism is quite helpful in filmmaking um, because it really does um, make you consider everything there's nothing's left out there's nothing that isn't considered there's nothing that isn't important i started off by doing sound design and i could do it because i could notice very subtle things and you know when i was making when i was mixing sound things that actually when you put it together with it actually are important they're the tiny bits like in the bass in the background that that stand out actually when when it all comes together i and i'm not saying i don't want this to be a whole you know special ability type of thing but from from my experience, it's been really uh, beneficial to be able to just notice the things that just seem like I can just, you know, put them in the trash. I don't need them. Um, I, I found like value in everything. And um, yeah, <laughs> I, I, being resourceful in that sense is really important just to be aware of everything. Yeah, I mean, cinema is this kind of sensorial process, right? It's not just about the things that we see and it's not about a kind of, um, I suppose, in a way, uh, um, one 
particular fixed vantage point of the world. It's about, I don't know, that's that's why I love making films. It's like, you know, you're thinking about sound, you're thinking about sensation, you're thinking about light, you're thinking about colour, you're thinking about the movement of small objects within a frame. And I think that all of those things together make cinema. So I can see why you would feel that that's a helpful, helpful way of thinking about it. I, I agree with you. Cinema, and it? it's an autistic medium. <laughs> well, I was just thinking about that and thinking, do we, is there a discussion of autism and filmmakers? Are we missing, are we missing some filmmakers who are autistic that we might want to think about? Possibly. I think what you were saying, Georgia, is really, and, and Vicky, really interesting about how, how how making films lends itself to that to, to that capacity to focus on small things unnoticed things usually yeah in that sense like filmmaking is gleaning <laughs> like in every mm. part of it like it like Vicky was saying you have to consider everything and um I because I, I got an email from someone um who'd uh, seen my blog and they, uh, they sent me an email just to uh, ask, you know, they had like an autistic relative who wanted to go into film, um, but he felt like, you know, he couldn't do it because, you know, he was autistic. And I thought it was really sad because actually there's a lot of, if you find something that actually helps you to to do that and that's actually, because there's so many benefits if, if you, if your main part of your autism is a hypersensory part that and then it's extremely um, beneficial and also just having a different point of view of things really helps so and I'm not I don't think I'm aware of many actual autistic filmmakers which is quite strange because I, f I feel like I, I should um, but yeah it'd be really interesting to to look more into that I think yeah <laughs> I feel like that yeah, this is something that I, I started to have a quick look at um, fairly recently because I, I did start to ask that question. Are there actually any famous, well-known directors <clears throat> who are autistic or openly autistic or have who we might say are autistic? You know, can we create a canon of autistic filmmakers? And it's curious that there's just like not really any that you can sort of pin down, not, not in the terms of like the really big famous ones. The only people that I came across, the only suggestions that I found, and it's obviously quite problematic, suggesting particularly people who are now, who are now dead, um, but also things that have not been fully confirmed. The only ones that I sort of came across were Tim Burton, who was apparently um, outed as being potentially autistic by, um, I forget the name of his wife now, um, I can't remember her name. Uh, Helena Bonham Carter. So, so potentially, to, yeah, but Helena Bonham Carter. Apparently, she was in it. She was. She did an interview, and she said that she thinks that Tim Burton is uh, uh, Asperger's. Um, whether that's been confirmed or not, I don't know. And then the other other one was Stanley Kubrick. Um, and Kubrick, interestingly, um, this came about because the journalist John Rodson did a um, 
uh, managed to get into Kubrick's archives and did a, a, an article about it. And lots of people were responding to Ronson's article saying, oh, sounds like Kubrick might have been autistic. He's probably autistic, et cetera, et cetera. And again, you know, it's tricky saying that because he's no longer with us and we shouldn't really necessarily retro-diagnose people. But thinking about Kubrick's films is there's something interesting there the way that they're shot perhaps the way that they're organized um potentially there's something non-neurotypical about about kubrick's methodologies potentially but yeah i don't know it's an interesting discussion um there's a there's an interesting is what you're saying about outlets though then david is that not about i mean perhaps it's about outlets and exactly as georgia was saying things being useful or not useful skills to have Um, I'm, what do you, how do you mean, what do you mean by that? I'm just wondering why the necessity to, if, if it's retro-diagnosed or not retro-diagnosed, why the necessity to, I'm wondering about it. Yeah, I, I don't know. It's a complicated one. I just think that, um, I think culturally there's a, there's a, it, it can be helpful sometimes to be able to indicate that, historical figures may well, you know, creative geniuses or what have you uh, may well have been autistic. I think that's quite, can be quite a powerful thing to say um, or to, to entertain. Um, but it is problematic, of course, because retrodiagnosis is a, is a, is a tricky path to navigate because um, obviously Kubrick was, as far as we know, never diagnosed as autistic and uh you know we're not in any position to be able to actually do that um but it's an entertaining thing to think of through i think and um and perhaps it might lead down towards some you know a, a different analysis of of his works or his canon yeah i mean i think that's that's a really interesting point to to, to, to end with is to think about not only retro diagnosis, I mean, that has a lot of debate about it, but some questions about who we might want to think about as, um, as uh, filmmakers who, who are using an autistic capacity, if, if you like, the way that Georgia was talking about to, uh, to bring to filmmaking. Um, yeah. Okay. I'm I'm aware of the time and um, how we need to to finish our discussion. Um, is there anything anyone wants to say to to end this? A final word. I really like the idea of um, lack of inhibitions um, or lack of sort of neurotypical inhibitions in in, in keeping certain things suppressed or, or not not exploring them and that's really interesting um just in general but also with with filmmaking and films and you know um i think georgia was mentioning sort of um technical aspects in film and so was vicky and then also uh, i like the idea of lack of inhibition in terms of making associations and th thematically and you know some people might think oh it's a bit weird to go from this to this but just embracing it and, and, and not suppressing it. I think that's really interesting and something we could explore further. Okay. Well, thanks everyone for their participation this morning. <laughs>